Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate you listening every week this at this same time to Bible Crossfire. We call the program Bible Crossfire because we're going to deal with God's Word, the Bible. But the Crossfire part comes in because we're allowing you to call in, ask a Bible question, make a Bible comment, possibly even disagreeing with it, something I say. I'm not the authority. I'm only right. If I say something that agrees with God's word, God is the ultimate authority. And the way he tells us how to please him is through thy word. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So God's word defines for us what the truth is. And as long as I'm proving what I'm saying by God's word, then I'm teaching the truth. But if I'm not, not proving it, and you can prove that I'm not, teaching the truth, you're going to be my best friend to correct me because I don't want to preach false doctrine. But if I am preaching God's truth as defined by his word, then you're obligated to accept it. Doesn't matter what you may have believed in the past or what everybody else thinks. God's word says this, that's the truth. Last week, we were talking about the authority and sufficiency of God's word. What, what do I mean by that? Well, by the authority of God's word, I mean we should only practice what the Bible authorizes us to do. And I quoted last week, Colossians 3, 17. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. In other words, don't do anything unless the Bible, God's word, authorizes. If Jesus doesn't tell you to do something, don't do it. The, the Catholic priest may say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus when he sprinkles a little baby. But Jesus has never told anybody to sprinkle babies for baptism. And so he... He may say he's doing it in the name of Jesus, but he's not to. Only do what is authorized by the word of God, Colossians 3.17. What do I mean by the sufficiency of God's word? I mean, I mean, the Bible tells us everything we need to know religiously. And I've had debates, public debates on this very question. It's, it, the, the topic is usually called sola scriptura. Is the Bible our sole authority? And a passage that I usually camp on in these public debates on this question is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Read that with me. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Now let's talk about that passage just for a second. First of all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I like to illustrate that this way. Here's an executive for a company and he wants to write a letter to another company. He's probably going to have his secretary type it up. The secretary may initial this letter because she typed it, but the author of the letter is the executive. Perhaps he, perhaps he dictated the letter. He's going to sign his name. He writes the letter. Well, the scriptures inspired by God means God is the real author of the 66 books of the Bible. Now, he used humans to type it to write it down, but the real author is God. He inspired it. He told those human authors the words to say, 1 Corinthians 2.13. Now, this scripture that it's inspired of God, I mean, it, it's, God is the author of it. It's profitable for doctrine. If you want to know the, the what the right answers to any particular doctrinal question is, you should let the scriptures decide. I mentioned a while ago, what about sprinkling babies for baptism? Well, you... If you want to know if that's scriptural or not, you go to the Bible. And and you'll remember Philip told the eunuch, the eunuch wanted to be baptized in Acts 8, 35 through 37. And Philip said, if thou believest, thou mayest. Mayest what? Be baptized, which implies that if you don't believe, you may not be baptized. Only believers should be baptized. 
And Romans 6 verse 4 says that we're all buried with him in baptism, with Christ. What When somebody dies, we take them out to the graveyard to bury them. Do we just sprinkle a little dirt on their head or we put them all the way up under the ground? We know what buried means. So if it says we're buried with him in baptism, it's going to be immersion. So baptism is not going to be the sprinkling of a baby. It's going to be the immersion of a believer. So you see how you let the scripture decide what the right doctrine is. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And we all need reproof and correction, correction and instruction in righteousness. Our whole lives, we're going to need that. Now, here's the part I want to get at for tonight, especially. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. In other words, the scripture is going to completely furnish us into all good works. It's all we need. Any good work, the scripture will furnish us to it. It will authorize it. It will teach it. Uh, Not necessarily specifically every time. When the Bible says go in all the world, preach the gospel, it's, it's telling us to go preach the gospel. It doesn't tell us how, walk, ride a bike. Take an automobile, ride a plane. All of those things are authorized by this command to go. It didn't have to mention airplanes specifically for that to be authorized, but it had to tell us to go for it to be authorized for us to go preach the gospel. That's pretty, it's, it's, that's kind of overly simplistic, but you see the point. The Bible is going to tell us everything we need to know. The scriptures are given that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. It didn't say some of the good works. All of the good works thoroughly furnishes. It's going to make us perfect or complete. Now, I've mentioned the debates I've had on this sola scriptura. Is the Bible our sole authority? So in all three or four of those debates, I was debating a Catholic apologist. And the Catholic apologist thinks there's three uh, legs, they say, of authority. They usually illustrate it with a stool. You know, a chair can lose one leg and probably still stand up at least halfway decent with three legs. But you have a stool, it's got to have all three legs. And so they say, the stool has to have three legs. If you knock one of them off, the, the stool's not going to stand. And he says, the Catholic says, this is a Catholic apologist, you need three legs of authority. The scripture, the Pope, and church tradition, that you need all of those. They're all equal. Well, so the debate was, I was contending what Second Timothy 3 says, that the scripture will truly furnish us into all good works. So they're saying, the Catholics... No, no, you need more than the scripture. The scripture won't thoroughly furnish you into all good works. You need also, you get some good works from, from church tradition and from the Pope. What they mean by the Pope, they mean he's infallible when he's talking about matters of faith. So, of course, uh, you see the difference. Is the Bible our sole authority or do you need the, these other things? And uh, a lot of denominational churches will say the Bible's our sole authority, but they use other things. They have Sometimes they let creed books be their authority, not all the time. And a creed book wouldn't necessarily have to be taken as authority, but sometimes they do. They say, for example, we uh, we have a Methodist preacher one time. He told me he couldn't be a Methodist preacher unless he agreed to preach, believe and preach everything in that Methodist creed book. Well, what he should have done is agree to believe and preach everything in the Bible. Sometimes people, even Christians, will let their favorite preacher be their authority. In other words, there's other ways to violate this principle that we read in 2 Timothy 3, that the scripture is our complete authority other than just what the Catholics do. The Catholics, you know, most of them will admit that purgatory, for example, is not taught in the scriptures. Well, if it's not taught in the scriptures, where do they get it? They claim that they get it from church tradition, and that is 
one of their three legs of authority. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 teaches the scripture is our sole authority. Now, if you have a Bible question, I want you to give me a call uh, or a comment, 877-655-6755. The number to call if you have a Bible question or comment is 877-655-6755. The numbers, the lines are wide open. Give us a call. We're talking about the authority and sufficiency of God's word. Let's discuss a passage I bring up quite often on this program. Matthew 15, verse 9. It says, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, Jesus here is implying really that what we ought to do is teach the commandments of God. But if you teach the commandments of men, your worship is in vain, which means useless or worthless. And you can't go to heaven that way, obviously. If your worship is in vain, useless or worthless, one of the reasons we worship God is because we want to spend eternity with him in heaven. And if our worship is not accomplishing the intended purpose, well, you see what I mean. Now, when you're at church next Sunday, when the preacher preaches a particular thing, I want you to ask yourself, is what he's preaching, is that a commandment of men or a commandment of God? Well, how would you tell? Well, I think we all know if it's in the Bible, it's a commandment of God. It came from God. And if it's not in the Bible, it didn't come from God. It must have come from men. You should evaluate every single teaching based upon that. You have some churches out here now, probably just my guess, 50% of the churches in the United States and Canada will allow, think, approve of gay marriage. Well, is that teaching from God or from men? It's certainly not from God. You can't find it in the Bible. It's got to be from men. What about women preachers? I'm told 75% of congregations across America will allow women to preach from the pulpit. But 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 is still going to say, let your women keep silence in the churches for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home for it's a shame for women to speak in the church. These churches allowing the women to preach from the pulpit are allowing a commandment of men. Therefore, their worship is in vain Useless, worthless, we can't go to heaven that way. That was, next thing I would like to do is read three passages from the Old Testament on this, on this topic of the authority and sufficiency of God's word. Numbers 22.18, Balaam said, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord to do less or more. We need to learn a lesson from that, even though we're under the New Testament law. When it comes to the New Testament law, we should not go beyond the word of the Lord to do less or more. And then Numbers 24, 13, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own, of my own hand. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. So we shouldn't do anything good or bad of our own mind. We should do what's good or bad of God's mind, what's authorized, what's taught by the scriptures. And then Deuteronomy 5, 32, you shall observe to do, therefore, as God commanded you, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So follow the scriptures. For us, the New Testament law, do not follow it exactly. Don't turn to the right hand or to the left. Don't go beyond the word of the Lord to do less or more, or good or bad of our own mind, or to the right or left. Examples. We mentioned women preachers. People are going to the right or left of God's word. What about the Catholic practice of praying to Mary? Aren't they doing something good or bad of their own mind instead of what's taught or authorized by the scriptures? 
If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 1 Kings 12.33, it says, Jeroboam offered in the month which he had devised of his own heart. Now, he's already doing something wrong. He's having these Israelites worship idols instead of the true God. But I wanted to key in on this phrase that he had them offer in the month which he had devised of his own heart. I think a lot of people are doing that today. Things in religion that are devised in their own heart. Instead of looking to God's word, the Bible, to understand how to practice Christianity, what to believe, what to teach, what to practice in Christianity, they're doing things devised in their own heart. Let me give you an example. In Acts 20, verse 7, we read this about the Lord's Supper. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Sure looks like to me that if you're going to follow this example, you're going to want to do the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Every week has a first day in it, yet many churches will do it, the Catholic Church, every day. Other churches will do it once a month or once every three months. Aren't they really doing something, the frequency of the Lord's Supper, are they doing it devised, something devised of their own heart? Well, you tell me. Think about it. Patty from Washington. Go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Hi, thank you. Uh, I was just listening to you talking about Colossians 3.17, where it says that we should obey uh, the commandments of God according to what the Bible says and what God has written, you know, inspired writers in the Bible or Jesus has said in the New Testament. Uh, and so I'm, my question is, based on that, um, you know, sola scriptura, based on that, where does it say in the Bible that God or Jesus changed uh, church worship from the Seventh-day Sabbath to Sunday worship. It's my understanding that that was changed in around 300 A.D. by church tradition. So that's my question. Okay, so I just read to you, Patty, one of the passages that talks about, uh, if you want to call it a change, I don't know if you call it a change, but it talks about how that Christians are to worship on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7 says, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now, this I'm pretty sure you would agree this is talking about a church service. And what is it saying that the disciples came together to do? It says they came together to break bread. What's that talking about, Patty? Worship. Fellowship. Yeah, it's talking yeah, talk about the Lord's Supper. Communion, Remember? Lord's Supper. Yeah, first, yeah. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So here we have the disciples coming together to worship, like you said, to do the Lord's Supper and have preaching. Now, what day of the week does this say they came together to do it on? In that verse, it says the first day of the week. Yeah, first day of the week. So, so that's not the Sabbath. That's not Saturday. The Sabbath was for the Jews from the time of Moses, when he got that law on Mount Sinai, until the time of Christ, when he nailed that law to the cross. But Acts 20, verse 7 says the first day of the week. Now, I mentioned, Patty, about Jesus nailing it to the cross. Let's go over and read that in Colossians 2, 14 through 17. Here's, here's, here's Colossians 2, 14, Patty. It says, 
blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So this says, Patty, that Jesus blotted out these ordinances, took them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. Does that sound like these ordinances, whichever one, whichever ones it's talking about, does it sound, Patty, like we still have to keep them or we don't have to keep them if he blotted them out and nailed them to the cross? But that sounds more like all those or- mosaic law ordinances okay. rather than the Ten Commandments. And then okay, it doesn't well, address well, the fact you, that he sanctified the seventh day on creation. So, so Patty, uh, that thank you for the comment, Patty. Hold on. You, you made a comment, but you didn't answer my question. Just answer the question. Does this sound like whatever ordinances he's talking about here, does it sound like we still have to keep them or we don't have to keep them? It sounds like we don't have to keep whatever okay, the ordinances so, are. All right, so let's look at some examples of these ordinances. Verse 16. Here's a conclusion he draws from verse 14. He says, let no man therefore, in other words, here's my conclusion. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or respect of the holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days. So he specifically names the Sabbath as one of the ordinances that Jesus blotted out, took out of the way, and nailed to the cross. So that would, just like you said, you admitted these are ordinances that we don't have to keep anymore. And one of them he names is the Sabbath. So we see in Acts 20, verse 7, we're to worship on the first day of the week. We see from Colossians 2 that the Sabbath has been nailed to the cross. that We don't have to keep it anymore. And then we read another passage, Patty, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Patty, I'm sure you've been to church enough to know what that churches have collections, right? Uh, I'm not sure how they did it back then. But, well, uh, have, have you been to church and, and seen a collection before? I have. Yeah, and I'm not criticizing because this passage is commanding these churches to do a collection. Now, the question is, what day is this commanding them to do a collection on? In that verse, they're talking about the first day of the week. Right. So, so this is all we have in the New Testament. Every time it refers to the Christians worshiping, and it names a day of the week, the Christians, I'm not talking about the Jews under the old law, but the Christians, it's always the first day of the week. It is always the first day of the week. So nobody changed it except God. Juliet from California, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, hi. I was just wondering, um, how do we know when a scripture is actually holy? Um like the scriptures that talk about or the the text that talks about Abraham's early years, how come those aren't part of the Holy Bible? Okay. Remember, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So all of the 66 books of the Bible, the scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, are you asking maybe about some other books that aren't included in, that are not included in the Bible, Juliet? Yes, the Apocrypha. Okay, here's how we know. Here's how we know. And it basically works like this. So I'm going to turn to a passage, and there's a lot of passages I could turn to show that the purpose of the spiritual, of the uh, miraculous, was to reveal God's word 
and to confirm God's word. For example, John 16, 13, Jesus, the night before he died, if I've got my timeline correctly, he says, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you the Holy Ghost. And John 16, 13 says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all the truth. So talking to these new, these apostles and New Testament prophets, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to guide them in all the truth. But now, how would you know, let's say a guy named Mark is in the first century. A guy named Mark says, hey, God revealed to me 16 chapters. And since he revealed it to me, we ought to put my book, the book of Mark, in the Bible. But then you have another guy named John Doe. He says, John Doe says, look, God revealed to me 15 chapters, and it should be a book John Doe put in the Bible. So the question is what you're raising, Juliet. How would they know to put the book of Mark in the Bible but not put the book of John Doe in the Bible. Isn't that really what you're, you're, the question you're asking, right? Sure. So John 3, 2, and there's a, about five or six other passages, and I can send these to you uh, by email very easily. But John 3, 2, it's talking about Nicodemus. It says, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So when Jesus, for example, could raise somebody from the dead, that would prove since no man without the power of God can raise somebody from the dead, they knew that God was with Jesus because he could do these miracles. He could raise somebody from the dead. So that means if God's with him, that means Jesus is who he said he is and what Jesus is preaching is the truth. So how do we know that the book of Mark should be put in the Bible but not the book of John Doe? It's because Mark could perform miracles like possibly raise the dead or heal the sick Something done unquestionably miraculous so that the people knew that God was with him. A miracle that only God could do. Man can't do these miracles. Mark could do those miracles and John Doe couldn't. So they knew when when Mark said, God revealed these 16 chapters to me, that it really did come from God, that he's not an imposter. He's not a pretender. He's not a fraud because he could do the miracles to back it up. Those miracles proved that God was with him. So they put the book of Mark in the Bible but John Doe couldn't do those miracles, so they knew he was a fraud. And so the book of John Doe was should not be put in the Bible because it was just made up by John Doe. Kind of like the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, just a fraud. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see, that, okay. you see that not only did the miraculous reveal God's word, but it confirmed it. It showed who really was revealing God's word. Go ahead, Juliet. Well, I'm just curious because um, I don't know a lot about it, but the the books that talk about things that actually blessed me to hear and kind of gave me some filled in some blanks, you know, about the history of different people. I, I just wondered if, you know, even though they're not part of the Holy Bible, you know, should I go ahead and listen to them or read them or not? And also... Um, if they're not part of the Holy Bible, then you could read them like I might read a book about Alabama football for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. But don't, when you read a book that's not in the Bible, you can read it for enjoyment or you may even read a history book to learn about history. But don't mm-hmm. think of it as inspired of God. Don't think of it as something that will affect what you believe doctrinally in any way. And don't count it to be without error. A book in the Bible is inerrant, but any book outside the Bible may be riddled with errors. If I were to write a book, Mm -hmm. say 100 pages Mm -hmm. long, I probably would have a bunch of errors in there. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm not inspired of God. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and also that kind of like connects 
to the thought of the the annals of the kings that's mentioned in the Bible, we don't know where those are, do we? What verse are you talking about? Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I don't know. But, like, you know how they mention, oh, this is all written in the annals of the kings, and then you don't, like, there's no way to, I don't know how to look those up. Like, they talk right about. Right now, I can't like, remember where that is, so I can't comment. But, probably, Ju- Juliet, okay, I'm going to have to go say, off the air. Thank you for your okay. call, okay? Maybe we can look that okay, up some okay. other time. Okay. Okay? All right. Thank all right, you. Bye-bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. So we're about to have to go off the air. We so appreciate these two callers and everybody listening to the program tonight. If you would like to sign up for my free one-hour phone Bible study, so you can study the Bible with me by phone, free of charge, when it's convenient in your schedule, convenient for your schedule, I want you to call or text me at 256-682-9753. That's my cell phone. Call or text me at 256 682 9753 if you would like to study with me. Free one-hour phone Bible study, something convenient in your schedule.